Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Berkeley's influential Chez Panisse restaurant has turned 50. Few restaurants anywhere have had its level of influence, as the restaurant came to stand in not only for a culinary style, but an entire approach to food, including the agriculture that produced it, the culture that rendered it interesting, and the design of the network of businesses ecologically connected through the restaurant. Alice Waters created this institution and extended its reach through programs like edible schoolyards, a shelf's worth of books, and deep support for an entire ecosystem of suppliers from local organic farms to the destination produce shop, Monterey Market. And she joins us today. Welcome, Alice Waters. It's a real and and really deep honor to have you on. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So everybody I know doing cultural and culinary work is sort of awed by the change that you've created in the food world. But I sometimes wonder if you don't miss some of the old challenges. Like, is it too easy to get people to listen to your message at this point? It's never too easy. <laughs> but I think we just uh, need to connect with people in a different way. And I always like to feed people ideas. <laughs> I don't like to talk. I like to put the food there. And they taste it. And then they say, oh. (laughs) That's actually how the restaurant got started, feeding some members of an underground newspaper, right? (laughs) We were very (laughs) non-professional. We were home cooks. And uh, we thought we could do this thing together. And it was, yes, there was an underground newspaper. (laughs) Um, I wrote a column in it called Alice's Restaurant. And I didn't know anything about cooking at that time. So I asked friends to give me special recipes, and I made them. And then I, I offered them to David Goins to Calligraph, and he did. And, and that was a little series that got us started. That's really. amazing. So, you know, I think... We like to highlight, because it's such an institution, we like to highlight the continuity of Chez Panisse, that, you know, you just always knew that it was this sort of North Star for, for Bay Area cuisine. But I actually want to ask you, what do you think has changed most about Chez Panisse over the years? And not even from, you know, the home cook time, but, you know, from 1980 or 1990. Like, what do you see as the evolution of the institution? It's always been about ingredients. And I'm seeing over the years that more and more farmers and producers are growing and raising food that is organic, regenerative, and the network 
has really multiplied geometrically out there. <laughs> and the focus, complete focus that we have on seasonality is something that has given me such pleasure in these last two years because when one ingredient's finished, it is finished. It's the end of tomatoes. <laughs> and we're into the next fall fruit or vegetable. We're having Bartlett pears right now. <laughs> They're positively delicious and persimmons. But it's that network that is taking care of its farmers and ranchers, pulling the carbon down from up there and putting it down in the ground where it belongs. And I think that that is the work that's most critical, most critical right now. My other question, just because I've heard other interviews with you, is about the sort of the labor model that you adopted, which long before I feel like these issues had the sort of prominence that they do right at this particular moment, you developed kind of a humane model of like having people work in the restaurant. Can you tell us a little bit about how it actually came to be and how it works? I hired my friends because I figured I had to be there for a long time and I wanted to have something in common uh, besides just the cooking, the work piece. And people always said, you know, you can't hire your friends. You're going to have problems. What if that doesn't work out? And I have to say, very few times it didn't work out. <laughs> Over 50 years, I think I can, not even on one hand, can I think of people that uh, left the restaurant because it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, um, my wife was mentioning, you know, just how many people have uh, come out of Chez Panisse. And she, she was like, as a learning institution is really one of the, the ways that we can think about it. its impact. And the alumni roster, we're going to talk with some of the alums in a minute here. It's really so remarkable. Did you always know that the restaurant would generate so many other chefs and restaurateurs? And did you intend it to go that way? Or did it just naturally unspool? It just naturally <laughs> unfolded. I never thought it would be anything but a little neighborhood restaurant for friends. I never imagined where that would go. Did you set up anything formally inside to help people kind of find their path? I mean, I, I imagine it wasn't, you know, 360-degree reviews and a bunch of, like, HR software. But, like, did you... Say like, hey, Sylvan, maybe we should think about that you might want to do X or Y or Z. And how could you get there? Was there a mentoring system that was in place or was it all just kind of uh, an emergent system? It emerged, but it was very deliberate, certain decisions we made. And uh, I think that it has really, you know, contributed to the longevity of the restaurant. One is that we have interns that come and work at the restaurant from around the world. And it puts the people who are working there in a position of teaching. So that's something that is really, really important. 
and the other is our proximity to the University of California. So we had the influence of, of the culture of that place. The people who came and spoke there, came and ate dinner at Chez Panisse afterwards and brought their, their passion of dancing like Mark Morris or Yo-Yo Ma, people like that, that, that it was a gift to Chez Panisse to be able to serve them. And I can't say anything was more important than Tom Luddy, who started really the restaurant with me. And he um, started the Telluride Film Festival. And everybody who came to town, he said, you, (laughs) we're going to eat there. And I think that that really stimulated a kind of... Uh, connection for all the people who work there. It was very uh, exciting to serve. Last question before we let you go back to your extremely busy day. If we go back to the early 70s, you know, Chez Panisse and you are in such an interesting position relative to the protest movements and counterculture of the day. Do you see any new restaurateurs where you're like, oh, they're kind of in the same place vis-a-vis these political movements that we were when we were starting this restaurant? Absolutely. I see many, many, many. And they're little small places, a lot of them, but they have all the same values. And it's so gratifying to have that happening. And we just need to get that happening in the public schools. (laughs) (laughs) Teaching the values that we need to live on this planet together. Thank you so much, Alice Waters, founder of Chez Panisse, an absolute legend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. We want to hear from you, listeners. Share your take on farm-to-table cuisine, on Alice Waters' legacy, And we also want to know, where do you think the new frontier for Bay Area or California cuisine really is? What type of cooking do we need more of? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. want to welcome in the rest of our panel to talk about this incredible legacy First, we have Ruth Reichel. She's the author, journalist. Uh, she's an author and journalist, and author of "Save Me the Plums," another absolute legend of the food world. Thank you so much for coming on. We also have uh, Sylvan Mishima Brackett, owner and chef of Rintaro, and a former creative director at Chez Panisse, as well as Andrea Crawford, a farmer, miller, baker at Kenter Canyon Farms who formerly worked at Chez Panisse and, as far as I understand it, supplied some of the first special lettuce uh, to uh, Alice Waters. Um, Ruth, let's start with you. Can you just indulge my love of 1970s nostalgia um, and just take us back into the world that birthed uh, Chez Panisse and and fostered it? What was it like? Um, It was, for one thing, really political. I mean, I, I think the thing to understand is that 
our generation, the people living in Berkeley, we had stopped the war in Vietnam and we were really proud of that. And we sort of looked around for what is the next frontier? What are we gonna do now? And food was sitting there as um, honorable work, as we, we were aware of mm. things like climate change. And we were very conscious of the fact that um, agribusiness was becoming vertically integrated. And food seemed like a really good place that people could take control of their own lives. So you, know, you had this community where you know, people had backyards and they were growing food and they were shopping at the co-op and um, they were really conscious. I mean, we were dumpster diving, you know, because we discovered that, you know, supermarkets were throwing away perfectly good food and that seemed really wasteful. Um, and this is, you know, before Berkeley was, was or had a gourmet ghetto. Um, you just had this group of very political people who were thinking, I mean, it's like one of the reasons why Chez Panisse was such an important institution. And I know people keep talking about how important Alice's emphasis on ingredients is, and it was enormously important. But also when you look at what's happening today with the kind of exploitive model of restaurants, she was thinking about how do you have a place where the workers are valued, where the work is valued. Um, you had um, the Cheese Board, um, probably the most important food collective that has ever opened in the United States, opening and creating another model. And then the Cheese Board then opened, um, split off uh, the Swallow, which was in the, um, right outside the Pacific Film Archive in the Art Museum in Berkeley, and then the Juice Bar Collective. So you had a lot of people thinking about food, but thinking about food in a very political way. Mm. And um, that's, it was a very supportive community for that. Yeah. Andrea Crawford, I know that you were working inside the restaurant in the 1970s, correct? That's right. Yeah. I, it was 1975. So so what was that like inside? So, you know, we've got the politics going out. We've got the politics kind of seeping in osmotically and also by active transport into the restaurant. What, is, what was it like, you know, working in, inside the walls? Well, I remember my very first night at Chez Panisse. I was very young. I had just graduated from art school. It was my first job. And Alice looked at me and she said, how, what did you think? How was it? And I said, I've just been at the best party. It was so much fun. And she said, just wait. <laughs> but, <laughs> but overall, I, I was just, you know, a wide-eyed, happy, you know, young person involved with a lot of people who were super focused on what they were doing, were very genuine. And that commitment um, to food and to just being there, you know, in the moment was something that made that place crackle. Everybody loved it. It was about the food, but it was also about the synergy between the people who were there. And I think it had a lot to do with their their authenticity and their commitment to what they were doing. Can you tell us about a few of those people? Just so we know that Alice was the founder and kind of central figure in this. But I think there were a lot of other people who were kind of crucial in sort of adding their ingredients into the, into the recipe. Yeah, that's true. Alice um, was sort of the leader of a band and uh, the person that brought me into the restaurant was Tom Guernsey, who was one of her partners. 
and he was more or less in charge of taking care of the dining room and 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 the dining staff and he taught me everything that I know about waiting on people he was not a professional waiter he sort of self-taught just like everyone else in the place but he had a lot of charisma and uh, he was very interested in food and I guess in fairness everybody in those days because the restaurant was still very young and small uh, did a little of everything you know there was Lindsay Shear who was is still a very talented pastry chef she did things with desserts I couldn't have even imagined before I had uh, my uh, relationship with Chez Panisse. There was, um, oh gosh, everybody who was involved there was was exceptional in, in their commitment to what they were doing and to the pleasure it gave them to do it. Yeah. Sylvan, you encountered the institution as it was like rolling down the tracks of American culture. What was it like when you arrived? And tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that you uh, did there. I <clears throat> started in 2001 and I started in Alice's office, working as her assistant and helping with all of the millions of projects that she had outside of the restaurant. So I remember fielding just dozens of emails from little startup farmers markets all over the country and uh, you know, university programs wanting her to come speak about food and agriculture. And it was just a really kind of crazy moment um, of, awareness in America around food and slow food had kind of really started to hit the scene at that time. So it was really overwhelming and kind of amazing. Yeah. You know, I also know that you did a lot of sort of design work because, you know, at Chez Panisse, it wasn't just the food that was on the plate and its composition and the ingredients and the sourcing. It was also just kind of the, the entire vibe, the, um, the, the gestalt that you would get from all of these thousands of little decisions that had been made about how the dining rooms would work. And, and can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to do that detail work to generate the kind of feeling people have when they go into Chez Panisse? Sure. It was, it was funny. I think one of the things that I was thinking about that I've learned from that restaurant was sitting at the computer, uh, drafting menus with Alice and, um, having her kind of nitpick over the type and the line spacing and the typography. And um, it was that kind of attention to these graphic issues, which I think is part of the big feeling of what the restaurant is. There's also a huge group of, of uh, printers and um, designers who've worked with the restaurant for such a long time. And I think really have kind of built the feeling of the whole place. It's amazing if you go search like Chez Panisse on Pinterest, like you see an entire like panoply of the vibes through time and how it has maintained um, a a feel, but also uh, evolved through time. We're talking about the legacy of Chez Panisse and what will be the next major food movement with Ruth Reichel, journalist and author of Save Me the Plums, Sylvan Mishima Brackett, who you just heard, owner and chef of Rintaro, an amazing restaurant, and also former creative director at Chez Panisse, and Andrea Crawford, farmer, miller, baker, Kenter at Kenter Canyon Farms, who formerly worked at Chez Panisse and also grew food for the restaurant. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the legacy of Shea Panisse. We're now joined also by Christian Washington. Their forthcoming restaurant is the Comfort Collective, and they're a former prep and line cook at Shea Panisse Cafe. Welcome, Christian. Hi. Hey. Um, so why don't you tell us your uh, Shea Panisse story? We're just, you know, sharing stories around the table here about how you uh, came to Shea Panisse and, and what you're going to take from it. Oh, um, so I came to Chez Panisse right after I graduated culinary school. Um, I had been on Bob Kennard's farm and it was, it was actually really funny because Bob is an eccentric man. And I, he was like, oh, like you, you went to culinary school and you know how to cook and like, you are really interested in agriculture and farming and like where food comes from, like you'd fit right in at Chez Panisse. And I was like, sure, that legendary restaurant's going to hire my like young, crazy behind. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll go down there and hang out. And like, lo and behold, they did. And I, like, I had no like plans or aspirations to like live in California this long. Like I very much came to Petaluma. I was like, Oh, Oh, like I'll spend three months. And then where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from Houston. Okay. And so when you came up here, like, what's one thing that you, you know, took from the experience of working there? And what's one thing that you knew in your own work you might want to change? Um, I think the one thing that Chez Panisse, like, really impressed upon me was just how to interact with food and how to listen to food and like letting food and especially like produce and especially like vegetables and like like letting them tell you what it needs like instead of being like a cook that just it's like this is how we treat tomatoes this is how we like we always just make this eggplant puree like it's like list like seeing like these are early season tomatoes like they're gonna need a little bit of this or like these are these cucumbers are late season cucumbers and like they're a little bitter, like maybe we'll do this with them. And like just treating everything in a case by case basis and not just putting blinders on and like treating everything the same. And really like giving food the care and the the care and the attention to taste its best. Yeah. It's something that I that that restaurant taught me to do and taught me to really engage with food in a way that a lot of places don't think about or don't consider. Ruth, um, that was a really beautiful encapsulation, I think, of sort of the, I guess I want to say like the the sole impact of, uh, of Alice Waters' approach at, at Chez Panisse. When we think about the rest of the things like we know that 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 sense of ingredient, that sense of sourcing has really moved very deeply into the culinary world. What do you think is the the next evolution of that idea? Like what I, I think what we want to drive at in this segment is like we know that Japanese has been so, so important. But is, is it the end of the line? Is this just the way food is supposed to be? Or do we continue on, on some sort of evolutionary path? 
Oh, I mean, obviously we continue evolving. I mean, we have a completely different audience for restaurants today than we had 50 years ago. I mean, 50 years ago, most Americans didn't know very much about food, hadn't traveled very much, um, and had very limited palates. I mean, today you've got you know kids who've grown up eating everything, um, who are and who actually understand that eating is an ethical act. So you have a completely different audience for restaurants and um, people who are much more willing to take chances to try things they've never tried before. So, I mean, if you just look at the number of things that you can buy in a supermarket, you know, today, I mean, I can buy gochujang in my supermarket in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Um, that was unimaginable when Chez Panisse opened. Um, you know, the idea that sushi was something that you would buy on every corner. Um, <laughs> For you know, better or worse. The idea, of eat, the idea of eating raw fish in 1970 was disgusting to Americans. So, um, you know, one of the things, I mean, I will never forget ever being on a plane with Alice. We had gone down to Chino Ranch and we had picked strawberries for dessert that night at Chez Panisse. And we got onto this little airplane that was flying from San Diego to Oakland. And we each had a flat of strawberries in our laps. And the aroma of those berries filled the airplane. And one by one, everybody on that airplane came over and said, I have forgotten what strawberries smelled like. Because in those days you couldn't buy a straw. There weren't farmer's markets. And supermarkets had berries that had no no aroma, no flavor. And I watched Alice give dessert that night at Chez Panisse away because she was just so thrilled to introduce people to flavor again. Um, but that's the world we lived in then. And today we live in a world where we still have, you know, regional Mexican food to discover lots of um, you know, vegetables that we have yet to hear of, but I guarantee you in the next five years, we will hear about them and start eating them. And, you know, it will keep it evolving, but um, faster now, you know, it started slow and now it's just really accelerated. Sylvan, I want to ask you, you know, Ruth was saying that this new space has opened up because the restaurant customer is kind of different. What do you do with that space? Like, how do, how do you make sure that you're sort of pe providing people with some new experiences? I, I don't usually uh, think about what the customer is going to want necessarily, but what I'm really excited about. So um, yesterday, for instance, I, I got a text message from one of my fish, uh, fish wholesalers, and he said that um, a salmon boat had gotten, gone out and caught a bonito and a barracuda. Like, I didn't even know there was local barracuda. <laughs> and we, we got them in yesterday and they were insanely delicious. And we served them as sashimi. And for me, that was, that's kind of why I do this. It's making something which is a little unexpected and really delicious. And from here, um, it's extremely satisfying. Christian Washington, um, you've got a forthcoming restaurant called Comfort Collective. What What's your concept for it, and how do you feel like it both was and wasn't influenced by Shaping? Um, I think that 
the influences I'm taking from Chez Panisse for this new project that I'm working on is that idea of being like, obviously I worked there for four years. Like I'm going to be doing like sourcing local and everything else. Um, but a huge part of why we're calling it like comfort is, I mean, it's also like the reason why we're calling it comfort is because we want to create a comfortable workspace. And especially for, because I myself and my partner that I'm uh, collaborating with, we're both like black queer identifying, like gender non-conforming people. And we're trying to carve out a space for people who identify like us to work and be comfortable and like work with these amazing ingredients. Cause like we so often find that we are the person, like the black person or the person of color and like, these workspaces doing the like elevated food that we all love and love to create and like love to eat. And we're trying to create a comfortable workspace for someone like us that like we can come to work and express ourselves like in our, like in every aspect of like our creativity and like in our presentation and our appearance and like not having to deal with like things that come along with being one of or the only and like Mm -hmm. and like bring the humanity that Chez Panisse um gives its employees and gives its staff like bring that to and making that accessible to a collective of people that identify the way that I do so did you feel like there was space for your whole self at Chez Panisse I think there absolutely was. Um, I, and I think in my personal journey, I was still like mapping and discovering myself. And I think that I had definitely had space for that. And like, um, and I think the person that I am today would be accepted and allowed to exist. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's always like, the things that happen when like the one other person of color is like over there and like you always like make eye contact every once in a while or like you know like but like, there, there are like always those things but like um there it always was a safe like it, it was a safe space for sure but it was also still a white space yeah you know yeah. like mm-hmm. and that and and like that is it's what happens, you know, like it's, yeah. it's a thing that, and also it was, it was very much like, it, what was so funny was I've always like, cause I grew up in a family white area. I went to a family white school and then I came here and I was like, Oh, like I know how to deal with this. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and like things would happen. I, I would handle them in my own ways. And like, sometimes like, management would like overhear things or like see things maybe like are you good like yeah they're like you know you can always come to us like I was like oh yeah I guess I guess this isn't ninth grade and I have to like deal with a bully on the playground myself like I have support and (laughs) but it was something that I I don't know and that and that to me was like oh yeah I guess I guess I I don't have to I don't have to be big and tough all the time anymore. 
which is also really nice. Like I have worked in kitchens in New York City where it was like the manager was the one that put you through the ringer, you know? Mm-hmm. So like to have that level of safety was really exceptional. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So, uh, Andrea, and thank you so much for that, Christian. I feel like that was, a, again, another beautiful encapsulation. I appreciate that a lot. Um, Andrea, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about the role that Chez Panisse played with producers um, which you became and have been for for most of your career now. Yes, um, I I was like early on. Um, I had a garden of my own with uh, two other women in Berkeley in a friend's backyard, and you know, some anyone who gardens knows it's the garden is never up to snuff for the person who's gardening. There's always something wrong. But that particular summer, um, the garden was perfect. And it was the same summer that Alice um, was really getting to be well-known. I think her first book had just come out and and things were really starting to happen for her. And she was hosting people all the time at her house and at the restaurant. And she kept coming in and raiding the garden. And one day I was sitting there with my newborn son on my knee, kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do for a living. And she came buzzing in and she said, oh, I hope you don't mind. I I just need some lettuce. I've got so-and-so coming over for lunch. And I said, oh, we always have too much, you know, just help yourself. Don't worry about it. And she looked at me and she said, well, if you have too much, you can always bring it to the restaurant and we'll buy it. And that simple off the cuff comment changed my life because I looked at her and I said, Alice, I said to myself, I didn't say this to her at the moment, but I said, I could have too much every day. And that was the beginning of me uh, pitching them with the idea of having the a uh, little little garden that would just be for the restaurant. And as I researched it, um, I realized that we would not be able to provide anything in serious quantities using people's backyards in Berkeley, except for the mescaline salad. And so I borrowed from the French intensive technique and I started to grow uh, organically, very rich soil, you know, just keeping everything just super healthy. We grew mescaline salad in quantities that the restaurant could use. We had plenty. They used it just downstairs in those days. Not There wasn't enough for the cafe. Um, and Alice loved it. And it was beautiful. And she ended up taking it with her and using it as kind of a hallmark to describe what it was she was talking about. And when I saw that happening, it occurred to me that maybe uh, I was onto something. And uh, so the baby lettuce thing is a lot of people know, ended up growing into really a new uh, wrinkle in agribusiness. I did not do that, uh, but it, it was it was done. I continued to stay smallish and for a long time was just an urban farmer, but I did move to Southern California where the weather is better and the, there are more restaurants. And uh, I moved down here in 1985 and uh, we've been doing the same thing, growing lettuces and culinary herbs uh, ever since. Amazing. for our local community in Southern California. And I definitely know you're not the only one with uh, a story like that, which is such an amazing uh, thing. You know, we do have some comments coming in. Gregory, for example, writes, an amazing story, but it's got nothing to do with the masses. The vast, vast majority eat at McDonald's or wherever they can. Chez Panisse is for the rich elites. Figure out a way to bring farm to table to McDonald's, but that's impossible, right? Ruth, I imagine you've thought, done some thinking about this. How, how do you answer this? Yeah, um, 
I answer it by saying last year, we spent $50 billion subsidizing farmers, mostly agribusiness. If we took that money, it's our money. If we took that money and subsidized the people that Alice is buying from, it would not be for the rich. Um, we spend a fortune on bad food in this country. The hidden costs are crazy. We're, we're a nation of people who are ill. Um, we have destroyed the environment. Uh, and the costs, if you take all those costs of what we spend um, on health and on the environment and put it into the cost, suddenly the equation changes dramatically. And we have to stop thinking that way. We have to stop thinking of good food as a privilege. It's a right. And it should be a right that the government affords people. And we need to just shift the way that they are spending our money. It is not impossible. Yeah. Thank you for that. Last thing, quick little lightning round um, for Sylvan and Christian. Somebody else, you have your great chefs in your own right. But who's somebody else working right now that you think is really, really exciting in what they're doing? Sylvan, we'll start with you. Mm, let's see here. I have a, a cook who used to work with me. Uh, her name is Junko Spicek, and she had uh, has a Japanese sweets um, kind of it's kind of Japanese sweets and snacks called oyatsuya, and makes the most delicious, the most beautiful little Japanese um, tea snacks, um, which sounds a little esoteric, and it is, but they are extraordinary. It also sounds delicious. Christian Washington, how about you? Someone working who's really exciting. Um, I would say that my the like the exciting place that I find myself at all the time, the place that is kind of a backbone of my inspiration right now would be Sarah Kiernan at Miss Ollie's. Mm-hmm. Um, she's kind of been a mentor to me in the last year, and every like there's nothing there's nothing better than going there and getting like a warm like bowl of cow heel soup or a hot plate of like jamaican oxtails um, oh my gosh i think we're gonna have to leave it there like, that is those are great <laughs> suggestions so we've been talking shape and at 50 with ruth reichel journalist and author of save me the plums christian washington their fourth congressional is the comfort collective sylvan brackett owner and chef of rentaro andrew crawford farmer miller at kenter canyon farms and earlier we spoke with alice waters you've been listening to forum i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.